Good morning. This morning is a joyous morning that will lead to a joyous afternoon. Today we are having our first lay ordination ceremony since 2019. I think the last one was in the spring of 19. So that's more than two years ago. And uh, this afternoon at three o'clock, uh, Jerry Oliva and I will give the precepts to four members who have been preparing for this for a long time. Uh, Jerry's gonna give the precepts to Sandeep Lahil and Kabir Nabi, and I will be giving the precepts to Sam Melton and Jonathan Colts. And I'd like to invite all of you to, to attend on Zoom. The link will be the same as our link here today, just to enter the Zendo at the BCC website. The ordinaries and the preceptors and a couple of people will be in person in the Zendo. And then the guests, uh, you all and family members and so forth will be welcome to attend on Zoom. And I hope that uh, the virus is willing, uh, we'll be able to be all in person in, in the Zendo again. I wanted to talk a little about the ceremony, my experience of it, and uh, also a little about the history and also the shape of the ceremony. But I wanted to contextualize it first uh, with what you've been studying in the course of aspects of practice. Uh, so you've been, we have been studying uh, Gakudo Yujinshu, guidelines for studying the way by Dogen. Uh, and uh, I hope you've all been enjoying it and learning there. The section I want to refer to, and someone else may go into it in much greater detail, is section eight of the Okamura's uh, translation, which is in the heart of Zen, part of Soto Zen. And the, the section is titled The Activities of Zen Monks. In the context of the ceremonies that we'll have this this afternoon, these ceremonies, we call it, there's, there's two names for the ceremony, which imply, but not, they don't exactly coincide with each other. One is called Jukai, which just means, means conferring slash receiving the precepts. Ju, is the conferring part, Kai is precept. Uh, and this is, uh, well, I'll talk more about it in, in a little while. The other way that we refer to the ceremony is lay ordination. The translation of that uh, comes from the, the Japanese Zaike Tokido, which means um, home dwellers ordination. And the other kind of ordination that we have is shuke tokudo, 
Home Leavers Ordination, which is what we generally call priest ordination or uh, actually novice priest ordination. Uh, and as Sojin has often talked about, uh, it, we, we don't necessarily have such a clear distinction between home leavers and home dwellers. Uh, so while you're here in the Zendo, everybody's a monk. And this ordination, there's, there's very little difference between the essential shape of the ceremony for lay ordination and priest ordination. There are some, there are some differences and they're significant and they're differences of a kind of clarified intention and perhaps relationship to your preceptor. But for all intents and purposes at the moment, uh, Dogen's words about the activities of Zen monks is relevant. He says, from the time of the, the time the true Dharma was transmitted from the Buddha to the first ancestor, which is Bodhidharma, uh, first ancestor in our immediate lineage, it has been directly and solely transmitted through 28 generations in India and six generations in China without the addition of so much as a single strand or the destruction of a single particle. The robe was handed down to the sixth ancestor who lived in Soke and the Dharma spread throughout the world. Subsequently, the Tathagata's true eye flourished in China. And now, uh, the Tathagata's true eye is flourishing in Berkeley. And the precepts and the robe that were transmitted are in form and in essence, what was transmitted to the sixth ancestor at Soke, and then what has been transmitted down to us. Um, then this, this says, there's an interesting passage here, very short. It says, the Dharma cannot be acquired by groping or seeking. When it is seen, perception of it is lost. When it is attained, discriminating mind is ascended. So this is, uh, this is challenging for us. The Dharma cannot be acquired by groping and seeking. Earlier this morning, I was, uh, teaching at, uh, in the Upaya chaplaincy program. And the subject for the day were something that maybe I'll give a, a talk on in the future. Uh, it's, a, it's a doctrine that goes through Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, and Zen called the three doors of liberation. And those are emptiness, signlessness, which means that uh, nothing has a particular form or sign. Everything is subject to transformation. And aimlessness or wishlessness. 
that's what's being expressed here. That last, that last door is what Dogen is saying when he says the Dharma cannot be acquired by groping or seeking. And this is, I think, one of the great marks of our, uh, of our particular school. And it rises in the context of, of lay ordination as well. The, uh, we have in Dogen's teaching the practice of, uh, the, the principle of practice realization, which means that we don't practice to gain enlightenment. We don't seek after enlightenment. We practice as an expression of our already enlightened nature. So enlightenment being within us is simply an expression. We express it, we express it in our activities, in our relationship to those around us, in Sangha, in our families, in the world, in the way we take care of people and to take care of the world, uh, in our song, in our dance, in our painting, all of that is an expression of our enlightened nature. Uh, so aimlessness is actually uh, expressed in many ways if you're familiar with the ox herding pictures, uh, which are, is a kind of graphic map of the path. The 10th ox herding picture shows the monk returning to the marketplace with gift bestowing hands. This is who is manifest when we enact the recognition ceremony of lay ordination. So uh, Dogen says, uh, a master asked Joshu whether or not a dog has Buddha nature. A monk asked Joshu, whether or not dog has Buddha nature, Master Joshua replied, Mu. Being with Mu, can you fashion, fathom Mu or hold Mu? There's no way to grasp it. Dogen says, I say to you, open your hands. Just let everything go and see. What is body and mind? What are your daily activities? What is life and death? What is Buddha Dharma? What is the secular way of life? Which is actually, this is a line in Kakuro Yujinshu. Ultimately, what are mountains and rivers, the great earth, human beings, animals, and dwellings? So this is, these are really good questions for our ordinaries and for each of us. This is a ceremony, so to me, this is a ceremony of recognition. 
Um, it's really moving. Uh, it's very moving to, for me, it's been very moving to witness it. The first Jukai that we had here was, I think it was in probably the fall of, uh, summer or fall of 1985. And it was Sojin's first ceremony uh, like that, that he had, uh, in, that he had officiated. So he had not so long before received Dharma transmission in Japan. And uh, he gave it to a crew of old members. And I remember being moved to tears uh, by this process of recognition. And uh, I think I've been in every Jukai since then. Certainly witnessed them and performed a number and assisted in, in quite a few. And I've never ceased to be move this way. So in this ceremony, uh, what we receive, and this is part of the, where the recognition comes in, we receive back a robe that we have sewn, stitch by stitch, taking refuge with each stitch. Uh, we receive the rock suit, uh, which many of you have and have received. Uh, and it's a, it's a precept garment. When you wear it, you're clothed in the precepts. And also when you, when you enact the ceremony, uh, you are clothed in the precepts and you can never take them off. Uh, so you receive an, a robe and you receive a lineage paper, which is a, uh, a document that at the top of the document is Shakyamuni Buddha. And there is what's called a bloodline uh, that leads through the Indian ancestors. And then it leads through the, uh, the the Rinzai and the Soto lineages in China and in Japan. And down towards the bottom, you get to Suzuki Roshi and Hoitsu Suzuki and uh, Sojin Roshi. And then uh, one of us would be this, in this case, Jerry or myself. And then the new ordinee, and this is where the direct recognition comes in. Um, your teacher, often in consultation with others, uh, presents you with a Dharma name uh, as an ordinary, and you've not heard this name until that moment. And it's a very powerful moment. It's, it reflects how you are seen by your preceptor. And also it's giving you a name to 
live into, to move into. Uh, and usually in our tradition here in Berkeley, uh, you receive uh, a two-part name. Uh, you receive two, two names of two characters each uh, in Japanese, Chinese. And the first name is broadly uh, descriptive. The first name is called a way name, which is kind of a manifestation of how you are seen. So it may be something concrete like Great Ocean or Dharma Mountain or, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, for Sojin it was White Dragon, uh, pretty concrete usually. And then the second name is, strictly speaking, your Dharma name, which is uh, seen as aspirational, or at least that's how I interpret it. And that's how it was told to me. So uh, it's something for one to grow into that is already within you. These qualities are there but you may not be able completely to embody them yet. So uh, my Dharma name is Kushiki. Uh, and Ku is uh, the same as Mu. Ku is emptiness, uh, a formlessness, and Shiki is form. We have these Ku and Shiki back and forth a lot in the Heart Sutra, right? You, we chant it all the time. Uh, I found this kind of daunting when I got this name. Uh, oh, Mr. Formless Form. You know, uh, what do I do with this? And my supposition has been that Sojin gave me this name because uh, at that point in my early years, uh, I was kind of stuck on form. Uh, and, you know, he had given me another instruction, which I took to heart to let things fall apart. Uh, and maybe I've taken that too much to heart. I don't know. Uh, but this is a, this is a dynamic, uh, to work with, uh, our Japanese teachers, I, I've told this story a lot. We had some several naming, uh, workshops and they made a point of letting us know that that was a really weird name. It is too abstract. Uh, but actually it's a great name. Uh, and the challenge that it presents to me, just to say is, how do I embody the form in a formless fluid way? And how do I embody formlessness in 
a formal manner. And this is a great con to live with for a Zen person, particularly for this Zen person. So I don't really care what people in Japan think. And this is the name that's on all my papers when we interact with Sotoshin, Kushiki. At any rate, you receive the robe, lineage, and the names. And uh, it's just really beautiful moment and I'm, I'm very honored to be able to participate in this. I'm honored just to be able to witness it. Jukai is the first major ceremony that was performed when Soto Zen came to America. Uh, the first Soto Zen group was formed in Los Angeles 99 years ago. And it was sort of after, also after a pandemic had was had tapered off the Spanish flu. And they created a place, a sitting group or a, a temple in an apartment in a private house. It was the Soto Zen Buddhist North America Buddhist Church. And they built an assembly hall, which is uh, as was called Zen Shuji. And now Zen Shuji is a is a temple on its own in LA. And they had a, a Jukai A for, which is a large Jukai ceremony that actually is, takes several days. And that was the first really planting of the flag of Soto Zen in America 99 years ago. And next year actually is going to be the 100th anniversary and they're going to do another large Jukai at Zenchuji in LA. But usually uh, what we call Jukai was from the Tokugawa period, which is like from 1603 to 1867, and, and even continuing to the present day, Jukai was often not something that you received as a lay person alive, it was part of the funeral process. It was unusual to have these large, to have a large public ceremony. It would happen from time to time, but not on a regular basis, nor for people to have the kind of ceremony that we have, which is recognition and acknowledgement in this life. Uh, instead, uh, the, and it, it's still true today, uh, often a Japanese funeral consists of, the heart of it is having a Jukai ceremony with the body. And the person receives uh, a Dharma name and a kind of ordination and a small robe, it's called a wagesa, it's like a collar. And so that as they move through the stages of, of death or of the post-death uh, journey, uh, they can 
if they're ordained, they will go directly to the pure land. Now, you know, without lapsing into theology, that's, that's what the ritual is. Uh, we do it for the living. Uh, and because we want people to be able to, we want to acknowledge people's Buddha nature here now. So let me just describe the, the structure of the ceremony a bit, and then we can, we can take questions. Um, the structure of the ceremony, we begin by a purification of the, of the space, of the, the ordination space, which is the zendo. And we purify it with, uh, with incense, in this case with flowers, and with uh, what's called wisdom water, or shasui, which is something that the, the priest does. Uh, the priest is acting in the stead of the Buddha, and so is drawing the wisdom, such as it is, from one's head, placing it in the water, and then aspurging the room. Uh, with wisdom to purify the space. Then the ordinaries, they chant the homages to all the Buddhas who came before. And then the officiant actually uh, does a direct purification process with each ordinate, placing the wisdom water on their heads or in their in their body mind and with that kind of cleansing then they are ready to uh to avow uh and repent all our ancient karma which of course very much very similar to uh the bodhisattva ceremony that i hope we'll begin to do again soon uh, all of these ceremonies begin with a vow, all my ancient tangled karma from beginningless greed, hatred, and delusion, I now fully avow. I now fully repent. Uh, having repented as part of this process of purification, then the ordinary receives the three refuges. We take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then they receive the precepts. They receive the pure precepts uh, to refrain from all evil, to do all good, to save all beings. And the, what we call the one mind precepts. Uh, the one mind precepts are uh, we used to just do the grave precepts, I vow not to kill, I vow not to steal, and so forth. <clears throat> and now, when we talk about one mind precepts, we have both sides of the precepts. We have the prohibitory side, uh, and we also have the, the, 
if the affirmation side, which is I found not to kill, but to uh, honor all life. Is that what the line is? I vow not to steal, but to honor the gift not yet given. So there's the side that uh, recognizes it's just, it's not just what we might easily fall into thinking of as the Ten Commandments, but it's also how we want to live, not just what we want to refrain from, but how we want to act, which is very important to me because the way I understand the precepts is that they are, they are instructions for our relationships. The precepts are about our relationship with others and also with ourselves. If you think about the ones, many of them, the precepts about killing, the precepts about stealing, about lying, all the precepts about speech, they're really about how will I act in relation to those around me? It's different than the precepts that you would receive if you were taking a full Theravada ordination. There you receive the Vinaya precepts, which are really rules. Uh, they're, they're quite binary. Uh, do this, don't do this. Uh, and there's no gray zone about them. In each of the precepts that we articulate and, and vow to, agree to, they call for a process of inner discernment of looking at our intention and of recognizing that all the precepts are, uh, have a, an aspect of impossibility about them. We can't live in an absolute sense without taking life. Uh, and so on, to, to take what's not, to, to vow not to steal, which means I vow to honor the gift not yet given is the other side, is urges us to examine our life and recognize what are the things that we take without even recognizing that we're doing so? What do we take, say, each time we step in, in the car or in an airplane? Uh, very hard to live without taking things. And our effort then, the precepts point us to our effort to make that as conscious as it can be 
in our life and make our choices knowing that there is nothing pure or absolute. This is another of the teachings that we receive from, uh, from all of our teachers that we don't, we can't live in a way that is pure of all the small things that we might do that, rec that represent taking what is not given. Um, you know, taken to an extreme, uh, you have the, the ancient Jain tradition, which grew up at the sort of pretty simultaneous with, with Buddhism in India, where people wore no clothes and they wore masks so they wouldn't accidentally inhale any insects. They swept the path in front of them gently as they walked so they wouldn't harm any beings that were on or in the ground. A very challenging way of life with, I think, a great emphasis on the notion of purity. We have a very dynamic and uh, challenging idea of purity uh, that is not always so clear. We have to figure out how it is for us moment by moment. And that's what the pre that's what these precepts, the Bodhisattva, the one mind precepts, uh, create a context for us to do. One thing I've come to feel about these precepts, and particularly receiving them this way in in Jukai, is that they create. an internal fundamental or ontological shift in our being that we are different when once we have received them the the karmic weight or impact of our activities is different when once we have formally received these precepts and, you know, it should make us more deeply aware of the conditions of our lives and the valence of our words and actions. And also, having received them, we can't give them back. They're there, kind of indelibly stamped on our being. At the same time, we can't keep them. This is something that people say uh, when they're in some discussion about lay ordination. Said, well, I can't keep them, you know, say the precept of 
not killing, well, I eat meat sometimes, or uh, the precept of not intoxicating mind or body of self or other. Well, I drink a glass of wine or I have a drink of whiskey, uh, you know, daily or sometimes. And uh, I'm not sure that I can give that up. Well, you can give it up, but you may not. And the guidelines are something, these, these precepts are something to remind us, uh, remind us of what our vows and intentions are when we have strayed from them and to return. And it may be just like Zazen, we have the intention to sit upright and follow our breath. And that's very clear. And then we find ourselves somewhat slumped over thinking about lunch. When that happens, because we have a clarified intention, we have something to return to. And the same thing, I think, to some extent is true in our lives as we have the opportunity to return to these precepts. One final thing I'll say about the, so you receive, you receive the precepts, your Rakasu, your new name, and you catch Miyaku, but there's another document that uh, many of us have been giving over the last 10 or 15 years, which is a, uh, a document of women ancestors. Uh, the Kechmiaku, the official Soto lineage, which of course in one sense or other was is a, is a kind of construct. Uh, in all of that lineage, there's no agreed upon uh, woman present in, in that, in that Soto lineage, which just without dishonoring the people or disrespecting the people who are in that lineage does not feel complete in this day and age. Uh, when we have, there's been a lot of wonderful scholarship and work that's been, that's uncovered uh, the women ancestors going back to Buddha's time. And when we have so many really strong women teachers in our contemporary Buddhist world, and particularly here in Berkeley. So there's a, a document that was created a number of years ago. It's quite lovely and uh, 
Let me actually hang on a second. I'll just show it to you. I don't know if you can see this. Kind of backwards, but uh, it's a circle. Uh, and then those in the middle are these small names of ancestors from Mahapajapati down to contemporary teachers. And then uh, I've written some text uh, of entrustment uh, and put the temple seal and my seal on it and the seal of the three treasures. And so this is a document that we give uh, we give to women and men. It's not just for the women, it's for everybody. And so I feel very good about this. Uh, and uh, maybe it's a provisional step, I don't know. But it's also true that as, you know, now, uh, as we proceed, uh, subsequent Ketchimiakus, now there are many women whose names will be in that lineage uh, very clearly. So, you know, Jerry has one and, you know, she's now seen in that line uh, of ancestors in, in, in our temple. So, so is Ryushin, so is Lori, and uh, there will be others and others in our lineage. So that lineage is no longer exclusively male, but still it's important to name and recognize the women ancestors. Another couple things that I wanna say is that um, Jukai does not imply that the preceptor is necessarily your teacher in a formal sense. That's an opportunity. Uh, I mean, I think that Jukai creates the potentiality for that relationship, which is certainly welcomed by the teacher, but it's, uh, it's up to the student to kind of actualize that. Uh, and, you know, there are often people who receive, receive Jukai and maybe they don't have such a close relationship to the teacher or they come from someplace else and they receive it and they go away, which is fine. They receive the precepts. But it's also really wonderful when it's the, it grows out of a relationship that becomes a deepening relationship between uh, teacher and student. And the other dimension that, again, is really important to me, although not always essential, is it's so beautiful that our ceremonies have been witnessed by the whole Sangha. And I feel that an unspoken or unarticulated part of the ceremony is actually 
recognizing someone's presence in the Sangha. Uh, that that presence is not, it's not welcoming them in because they're already in. It's acknowledging uh, where they are, where they stand, and it's including them in a formal way in the Sangha, or it's acknowledging that they're already included in the Sangha. Uh, and to me, that's really important. The, the Sangha life is, it's really the ground or the garden from which we all grow. Uh, it's not just Buddhism in some broad sense, or it's not just, it's not just Buddha, it's not just Dharma, it's actually Sangha is the enactment of Buddha and Dharma from, from my perspective. And I think that one of the things I've been reflecting on this uh, in something I've been writing about Sojin is this is what he enacted from day one. Uh, he just invited people into Sangha and practiced with them, worked with them, ate with them, lived with them, with us, not them, us. And this is a, a really powerful model, particularly in a lay society where uh, many of us have very busy and active lives. But the community, the Zen community here is, I think a pivotal factor or element of, of many of our lives. So I also see lay ordination as a kind of confirmation. Uh, my sister said, oh, this is like your Zen bar mitzvah. Uh, and well, in a sense it's true. Although actually I enjoyed it my bar mitzvah was a complete conundrum to me, uh, but the lay ordination was just a joy. Uh, and so I think that I would encourage you to come this afternoon and recognize our friends, Sam, Sandeep, Kabir, and Jonathan, and uh, see them and see ourselves in reflection for them. So I, I think that's where I'll, where I'll end and uh, let Blake call on people for questions and answers. Okie dokie. Uh, Nathan Britton, please unmute yourself and ask a question. Hi, Hazan. Um, thank you for helping to explain um, Jukai and the process. Um, I'm very happy for the people who will be receiving that today. I, I have kind of a, it's sort of an intellectual question, but it came up, I was reading about precepts recently and I came across a translation, if I understand what it was correctly, of the 
Chukai ceremony from Dogen. And if I read it correctly, the third precept was not a prohibition against um, inappropriate sexual behavior, but rather it said, I vow not to covet. Um, and I was, I was curious um, just if you had anything to say to clarify um, about that. Well, the third precept is usually the precept against lying. Hmm. And I suspect that that's, I mean, I have to see the, the text that you're using. Uh, I, I could, I don't want to pull it up now, but okay. we have the Kyoju Kaiman, which is, which is Dogen's set of precepts and their, and the commentary, the brief commentary sentence or so. Uh, and I think coveting would probably be the third precept. Yeah. What, what's been adapted, you know, from the monastic precepts where, you know, in the full precepts or in a, a temporary monastic setting, uh, it basically would be a prohibition against sexuality. And that would include between people, that would include masturbation, uh, all those would be proscribed. Uh, the way this has been framed in our contemporary times is uh, not to misuse sexuality. Uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh was really helpful in framing that as basically healthy, loving relationship between people. Uh, so uh, there's a note in the chat that I want to look at. Uh, Okay, well, Sue Moon says, and she may be right. Actually, I think our third precept is usually the one about sexual misconduct and the fourth precept is about lying. So I didn't think we'd have to go back to, they have to go back to the to text. I may have misspoken, which uh, that can happen. Uh, but anyway, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, reframed that precept uh, as uh, an affirmation of uh, healthy sexual, healthy loving sexual relations with healthy sexual relations within the context of a loving relationship. And uh, because of the efforts of his students, uh, he changed it from within the context of a healthy marriage to relationships which actually could include same-sex relationships, uh, which all seems for the good to me. I want to thank also, before I call on Pauline, particularly thank uh, Jean Selkirk, who has been instrumental in steering uh, most of our uh, 
Jukai soars uh, through through the pandemic before and, and now after. And Jean is our uh, sewing teacher. And also Hannah Mira, who uh, worked directly with with one of the ordinees and also helps helps with the sewing quite a bit. Uh, without them, uh, we would be really hard for us to do this. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that next year we can have our Jukai in advance and, uh, you know, people can talk to me or one of the other teachers in the next, uh, in you know, once we get to the new year, uh, if this is, you know, a wish that they might want to to do, but let's not talk about that now. So Pauline. Uh, hi, Hazan. I had a question about the uh, two names that are given. The uh, I sort of had an understanding that of the two, one might be kind of more commonly publicly used. It's, you know, you might use it to introduce yourself to people around the Sangha more, and then another would be kind of a more inward or, or only used in, in selective times. Is, is that right? It's kind of right. I mean, basically, um, you would customarily use your Dharma name, which is the second of the two. But uh, some people go by their first name. It's okay. And these aren't secret names. I mean, uh, you can use one. Some people choose to use to be identified around here by their Dharma name. And uh, yeah, so I go by, I use my way name, uh, Hozan, uh, and I've done that for years. And uh, Sojin used his Dharma name, Sojin. Uh, and some people like our friend uh, Penelope Luminous Heart uses her, uses in, as they do in LA, the the English version of their Dharma name. Uh, so it's it's your choice. They're not secrets, but usually you would you would land on on one or the other of them, and if if you wanted to be known in that respect. Thanks. Thank you. But they're not secrets. The, what I would say is, you know, basically your Kechimiyaku, your lineage papers are are really private. You can show them to a loved one, but basically you keep them in their wrapper, you know, on your altar or uh, in the top of a, a drawer. And uh, they're, they're private documents, not secret documents. So Helen. Good morning, Hazan. Morning. I wonder if you would say a few words about this, what the, um, uh, I'm forgetting the word right now, um, but what the what you sew, what that represents, and a little bit about that process. Sure, um, I'm happy to. So what you're sewing is a small version of the Buddha's robe, which seems to have evolved at some point in China. It might have evolved in the context of one of the periodic repressions of Buddhism where it was not, you weren't allowed to wear a full robe. So people kind of more secretly 
sewed these little robes. In, in, in Japan, a priest would wear this uh, often when they're out in public. Uh, and it's, but it's constructed according to the same principles as the large robe. It's, it's made of, uh, of strips of material that are sewn together. Uh, it was traditionally made of discarded cloth. When the Buddha gave his instructions for the creation of the robe, there's some very clear regulations, you know, you would use, uh, you would use various kinds of discarded rags, uh, funeral shrouds, uh, things have been chewed on by animals, and you would, you would soak them and dye them, patch them, and, you know, dye them all a uniform color and then sew them together in this form, which is the form of a rice field. Uh, that was the inspiration that he got when he asked uh, Ananda to create a robe, a particular robe for his order. People wore robes, monks wore robes, uh, of monks of, of pre-Buddhist or other, other uh, Indian orders. And he wanted a, a robe that was designed for his order. And he asked, Ananda to design this in the in the form of a rice field, so that's that's the form of it. Um, we do, we are part of a tradition which is unusual in Japan, actually, uh, that we sew our own robes, uh, and we sew those robes by hand, and we take refuge with every stitch, every stitch we say. Namu kie butsu, I take refuge in, in Buddha. Or as our teacher Blanche Hartman used to say, with each stroke, I plunge into Buddha. Uh, and so we're taking thousands of refuges in the course of finishing our Raksu. Or, or our cases, we saw our cases by hand also. So, I think we're about out of time.